Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigSceneDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of sports yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Now, live and direct from the press box at Old Comiskey Park, it's time for When Football Was Football. Let's join your host, Joe Ziemba, with another forgotten tale from Chicago's pro football history. Let's go! Welcome back to When Football Was Football. I'm your host, Joe Ziemba. No one knew it existed, but suddenly, there it was a dusty, withered document that brought a quick end to a daring rivalry, disrupted an NFL team's plans for an economic revival, and may have even saved the NFL. That was then, but six decades later, no one knows where this incredibly valuable manuscript is hiding. It was a key to what an NFL commissioner called the most difficult decision I ever made. But now that outrageously important document has once again evaporated into history. Where is it? (laughs) Does it even matter? Probably not, but at one time it was considered so powerful that the entire league debated its merits. It was simply called the Madison Street Agreement. And it forever changed the balance of power of pro football in Chicago and perhaps the National Football League. On this episode of When Football Was Football, we'll share the unique story of the Madison Street Agreement and explain why it remains a mystery to this day. Our story begins in 1957 when the Chicago Cardinals completed a difficult 3-9 campaign under coach Ray Richards, including a woeful 0-6 home slate at Comiskey Park on Chicago's south side. Attendance was sluggish, with only a mere 10,084 showing up for the final home game of the season. A sluggish 27-2 loss to the Steelers. Except for the lone home game that year with the rival Chicago Bears that attracted over 43,000, the Cardinals were usually faced with crowds less than half that number, such as when the Eagles knocked off the Cardinals 38-21, on November 3rd before just 18,718. Meanwhile, the neighboring but not so neighborly Chicago Bears playing at Wrigley Field on the north side of Chicago had stumbled through a rare losing campaign with a 5-7 record. However, the crowd still filled the old baseball park for each home game. Battles with Green Bay, Baltimore, and Los Angeles all attracted over 47,000 fans. In fact, the smallest home attendance for the Bears in 1957 was 39,148 who witnessed a 14-3 loss to the Redskins on December 1st. 
That number dwarfed the home attendance for the Cardinals for any non-Bears game held at Comiskey Park. And this is where our plot thickens. With the Cardinals hurting at the gate and revenue sharing in the NFL still an idea that would not begin until after Pete Rozelle became commissioner of the NFL in 1960, management began to seriously consider alternative revenue resources. The big bucks from television rights were years away as well, so the Cardinals were determined to adjust both their revenue and expenditure models. The possibility of moving the organization to another city was a possibility and one that would likely be warmly welcomed by other owners since the card's low attendance at Comiskey Park forced visiting teams to accept the minimal league guarantee rather than a lucrative share of the gate, which was more common at the time with teams such as the Chicago Bears, who attracted large crowds. In 1957, a gentleman named Walter Wolfner was the managing director of the Chicago Cardinals, a position bestowed upon him after his marriage to Violet Bidwell, the owner of the club. Violet, of course, was the widow of Charles Bidwell, the owner of the Cardinals, who passed away unexpectedly in early 1947 after putting together the roster of the club that would win the NFL title later that year. Anyway, Wolfner came up with an idea, and it was a good one, that might help the Cardinals increase their home attendance. Wolfner proposed that the team move its home games to Dyke Stadium on the campus of Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, a suburb just north of Chicago. The Cardinals were dead serious about the move and quietly discussed the possibility with the administration at Northwestern, which, which seemed receptive to the idea. The team also did some local marketing, visiting with nearby residents and business owners and seeking their opinion on the potential relocation of the club. Again, there appeared to be support for the concept. All the Cardinals now needed, and it was a big challenge, would be to secure the approval of the other owners in the National Football League, including George Hallis of the Chicago Bears. Hallis and Wolfner were not buddies and often took their disagreements to the local media in Chicago. However, this suggestion would seem to be a win-win situation for both Chicago clubs. After all, a healthy bottom line for the Cardinals would strengthen the overall finances of the league. Or as the Chicago Tribune once wrote, Eastern Division owners in the National League, faced with expanding expenses, had sought for several years to have the Cardinals move out from under the shadow of the prosperous and successful Chicago Bears to some location where it would be possible for visiting clubs to come nearer to breaking even than on Chicago visits. The Cardinals seldom were able to pay teams visiting Chicago more than the $20,000 guarantee. Some clubs actually lost that much when they went calling in the loop. With the expected increase in attendance at Dyke Stadium, the Cardinals might regain their financial footing and also be able to provide more than the bare minimum guarantee to visiting teams. But then, like the mythical god Thor, George Hallis disrupted negotiations when he tossed out a lightning bolt of a document that absolutely no one knew existed except George Hallis. It was indeed the previously mentioned and mysterious Madison Street Agreement. 
Its mere existence both shocked and surprised everyone involved in the Dyke Stadium discussions, according to Ray Geraci of the Cardinal staff, who said, The move was just about set to go. Hallis got wind of it. He literally blew his stack because he knew that if the Cardinals went into Evanston, we'd have a better stadium and would probably become dominant in the market. So lo and behold, he pulls out a document that he had signed with Charlie Bidwell. No one in the Cardinal organization knew it existed. Mrs. Bidwell didn't know. Wolfner didn't know. Not even old Arch Wolf, who was there during Charlie Bidwell's era, knew about it. The agreement was originally signed by Dr. David Jones, the owner of the Cardinals back in 1931 and then renewed by Charles Bidwell a few years later in the 30s. For some reason, both the Bears and the Cardinals agreed upon strict geographical limitations for holding their home games in the city of Chicago. Madison Street, an east-west thoroughfare that divides the downtown section of Chicago, was identified as the separation point for the two teams. In other words, the Cardinals would not venture north of Madison Street to play host games, while the Bears would not travel south of that divide to play any of their home games. It seemed fair at the time, if not unnecessary, but the two clubs entered into the agreement, which was designed to offer each Chicago NFL team its own protected territory within the metropolitan area. But there's a couple of holes in this document. The most obvious is that the Cardinals moved to Wrigley Field in 1931 and shared that stadium with the Bears throughout the decade. Next, Dyke Stadium is in Evanston, not Chicago. So did the agreement stretch those carefully aligned borders into infinity beyond the Chicago city limits? And what about Soldier Field, the current home of the Bears, which is definitely south of Madison Street? Would the agreement remain in place even after one team left the city? So now, 27 years later, Hallis used the aging and previously unknown document to block the proposed move of the Cardinals to Dyke Stadium, which is definitely north of Madison Street. Surprised by this refusal, but not wavering in their intent, the Cardinals then initiated a lawsuit in Superior Court in Chicago on September 26, 1958, that sought to void the Madison Street Agreement, and thus paved the way for the team to move to Northwestern. In correlation with the litigation, the Cardinals also asked NFL Commissioner Burt Bell to intervene in the dispute on behalf of the Cardinals. Surely this agreement signed by the previous owner of the team in 1931 would not be valid in 1958, would it? It was a tough decision for Bell, and he asked his brother, a justice in the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, for his advice and assistance. After both sides presented their cases before Bell at the NFL meeting on January 22, 1959, Bell was ready to announce his decision. Prior to sharing his determination, Bell admitted that this was, in quotes, the toughest decision I have ever had to make, unquote. But much to the chagrin of Walter Wolfner and the Cardinals, Bell decided that the Madison Street Agreement was still valid. In addition, he explained that his careful consideration of all the facts indicated that the agreement was one between two NFL teams not just the individual owners. 
As such, the proposed move by the Cardinals to Evanston was blown out of the water and there was little left for the team to do in 1959 except explore opportunities for other facilities. Of course, there were few, if any, options available in the Chicago area. So the Cardinals elected to move their home games to Aging Soldier Field on the Chicago Lakefront. However, two games were also scheduled for Minneapolis. Four games were played in Chicago, and two other home games were staged in Minneapolis. Except for a home game against the Bears, which attracted 48,867, none of the other five contests brought in more than 26,000 fans. It was no surprise that the Cardinals finally moved to St. Louis in March of 1960, but one wonders, what if? The move to Evanston had not been undermined by the infamous Madison Street Agreement. Would the Cardinals have enjoyed an upsurge in attendance and returned to prominence in the NFL? Instead, the team struggled financially and limped out of town for greener pastures. As it was, the unearthing of the Madison Street Agreement by George Hallis really hurt the Cardinals, as Walter Wolfner told Sports Illustrated magazine in 1960. He said, That agreement wasn't worth the paper was written on, said Wolfner, but Bell gave it the force of law by stepping in and ruling that it was valid. If we had moved to Dyke Stadium, we wouldn't be leaving Chicago now. The emergence of the Madison Street Agreement virtually ended the NFL's oldest rivalry, damaged the Cardinals' hopes for an improved economic presence, but also may have helped save the NFL against a new, well-funded rival, the American Football League. The AFL might have possibly placed a club in St. Louis, which could have hindered any imminent NFL expansion plans. Instead, the wandering Cardinals finally found a home there. As the years have slipped by, the original Madison Street Agreement has once again disappeared. Collectors of pro football artifacts will note that the two most difficult Hall of Fame autographs to procure are apparently those of Hugh Shorty Ray and Charles Bidwell. However, I would contend that the most elusive NFL historical document is indeed the Madison Street Agreement. Since both the Bears and the Cardinals endured storage room fires years ago that gobbled up most of their historical records, neither team seems to have a copy of the document, nor do any of the libraries and museums in the Chicago area. I was hopeful to find a copy of it at the Pro Football Hall of Fame likely attached the official minutes from the January 1959 league meeting. The minutes were there, but, sadly, not a copy of the agreement. (laughs) Somewhere, somehow, we hope a copy still exists. But we fear that, just like the Chicago Cardinals, the Madison Street Agreement is just a distant memory. Thank you again for joining us for this episode of When Football Was Football on the Sports History Network. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering 
all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Do you wish you knew more about the 100 seasons of the NFL? You're in luck because you found the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. From the founding of the league in an auto showroom, all the way to what it is today, America's favorite sport and a behemoth of an industry. My name is Ernie Chapman. Football is my passion, and I want you to come along with me each week to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board, my DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.